Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to the show. We are looking forward today to talking to you about all things garden. So if you would get a pen and write down our number so you can give us a call. It's 979-845-5689, 845-5689. Or you can email us at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And we've got a few emails to go through today, so why don't we just jump right in and start doing those. I had a question come in from Ed. Uh, Ed has a a fig tree and a citrus tree that both uh, had uh, been killed back and uh, is now looking at the, uh, in the case of the citrus, uh, the rootstock uh, that is growing back. Uh, and so the question is, you know, what, what, which shoots do you keep on things like this? Uh, how do you handle a plant that is, has been killed back like this? Um, it looks like in the case of the citrus that the tree uh, is also alive above the graft some. There is some shoots coming out below and some shoots coming out maybe above. If I'm seeing that wrong, Ed, then ignore what I'm just about to say. Uh, but on the if, if you do have any living shoots on the above the graft or above the bud, in the case of citrus, as it was budded more likely than grafted, um, rub off all the, the uh, shoots that are coming from below the graft. Just At that small stage, when they're young and tender, you can just rub them off with your hand or you can prune them off and uh, just let all the energy go into the grafted shoots that are, or the budded shoots that are growing. And uh, probably select just one since that's down low and let it grow. Uh, And that will form your new tree at some point. As that shoot gets stronger, I would cut away the dead old stem of what was your tree. Uh, I wouldn't do it at this stage because when those new shoots come out, they snap off so easily, which is what I was saying. You could just rub them off with your hand that I, I I wouldn't take a chance on in the process of cutting off the old tr- small trunk, which, uh, you know, is just very, very small, uh, I wouldn't take a chance on damaging that shoot or breaking off that shoot, too. So give it a little time for that shoot to kind of get some size on it and be a little stronger, and then cut off uh, the other one. On the fig trees, we, we often have our figs die back to the ground or close to the ground, or maybe they don't die back, but uh, new growth begins to come out at the base. And in the area we live, Cold damage to figs can happen often enough 
that we don't try to make a single trunk fig tree. You can do that, but what will often happen is that trunk will get killed and then you end up with the re-sprouts and, and you're back to a fig bush again. And we say fig tree because that's what in its natural habitat it would be. But uh, for us, I think we probably ought to say fig bush. Uh, so you want to select about six, in the case of the size of tree, you have six to eight of those shoots. If you can space them out at some distance, uh, cut off everything else and let those six to eight form the new bush or tree. Uh, and that way it, it will uh, continue to be productive. It looks like you have a lot of good healthy ones that, that made it through and are doing just fine. And then just remove all the others. You don't want it to be such a dense tangle of figs in there. Uh, that, uh, it, you know, it's hard to get in and, and one stem is rubbing against another and overcrowding and so on. So that's, that's how I would handle that, Ed, if, if, that were, if that were my plant. And I hope, I hope that helps. And if you don't have a fig tree and you're listening to the, to the show, I, I'd recommend you try to get one. Those are one of the easiest care fruit trees that we can have. And uh, they're just, uh, you know, some trees like apples, for example, oh my goodness, they take a lot of pampering and spraying and things to keep them going. Uh, but figs are really easy and they, they do well. Just the cold is the biggest hurdle. And we've got a little foliage disease called rust that sometimes uh, shows up and is a problem. But um, with the with the figs, uh, I would consider that an easy care. In fact, if you wanted to grow organic fruit, fig would be one of the ones that I think you could you could uh, do that with, with a minimum of um, of issues uh, on it. I had another question uh, from Kelly, and Kelly had a, a palm that uh, didn't make it through that really cold snap uh, that we had. But down at the base, there are some pups or, or uh, babies, if you will, coming up that uh, I, ca I can't tell from the photo if they are actually, um, they're probably seedlings from the from the one that died back, but they could be, depending on the species of palm it is, they could be pups that are growing around the base. Some palms are multi-trunk species and some are not. I, this My guess is that this one is not a multi-trunk species. So, so anyway, whatever they are, uh, when you take out the old one, uh, the question is how do you take out the old one and uh, don't kill the new ones that are coming in around the base? Um, I, you know, there, there's just not a good way to do that. Uh, you could, you, you could, uh, just, you know, have someone with a chainsaw do as good of a job as they could cutting away that old without damaging the new one. Uh, the, some of those could be dug if they're their own plant and they're not part of, they're not attached as like a pup would be, uh, they could be dug and moved. But I'm going to tell you, palm roots are really strong and think about it. You go to the tropics where hurricanes are blowing through all the time and you have a palm tree that's this long skinny tree with this giant uh, uh, circle of leaves up at the top to catch the wind. How on earth do those things not blow over every time the wind blows? Uh, we've got trees in our yards that couldn't handle that. Uh, and so, and it's because the trunks are strong and the roots are incredibly strong. And when you've got that kind of a strong trunk, and strong roots, uh, uh, or strong roots rather, that's a tough tree to dig. But it can be done. Uh, you can dig them and move them, and they will live. Uh, it's best done in the summertime. It's kind of unusual because most things we say don't try to transplant them in the summer. But with palms, we do transplant them in the summer. They do just fine. 
So that would be my suggestion. As far as any uh, any other ways of going about that, uh, that it's just a, it's really a challenge. Uh, I don't know any businesses or, or groups that, that do that kind of thing as a service uh, in terms of just a, a public service rather. Uh, but there may be uh, there may be some arborists or some other um, just general landscapers that that could do that kind of thing. Uh, uh, for you. I know that's a that's quite an undertaking uh, to do. Uh, let's go to the phones now and again the number is 845-5689 and talk to Shelby. Hello Shelby. Hi Skip. Hey what's up? I was wondering if you could walk me through how to do a soil test in our backyard. Okay and uh, what are you wanting to grow? So we're pl- we purchased a peach tree. I can't remember. I think it's like a L'Oreal or something like that. Okay. Um, that we're planning on planting, but we just wanted to make sure that our soil would be um, up to yeah. par with what it needed. Okay. Well, normally with a soil test, we're taking samples, like if it was for your lawn, from all over the place because we want a good kind of mixture, a composite of what is everywhere in the yard all put mm-hmm. together. With a with a peach tree, that's kind of a, a one plant, one spot. So I would probably sample from an area about maybe 10 feet out from the tree in all directions, and mm-hmm. uh, or at least you know eight feet out in all directions, and go down from the surface down about six inches deep, and and take out a vertical sample of soil. So they make little soil sampling probes that that do that, that they remove the vertical core. 99.9% of the people don't have one of those. So what we say is you dig a hole with a, just scoop one scoop of a shovel out uh, with a good straight side going vertically down. Mm -hmm. And then you back up about an inch or two behind that and scoop again, and that gives you that vertical slice. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you have the same amount of soil from the top inch as you do from two inches, three inches, four inches, five, all the way down to about six inches. Mm -hmm. And if you do that in about three spots or five spots in the area where you're going to plant the tree and then put it in a bucket and mix it up, then you'll be sending the lab the best average composite of what that tree will be growing in. And that way, when they make the recommendations, they'll make it based on some accurate information based on your site. Okay. I hope that wasn't too complicated, me describing. You should have seen me waving my hands in the studio. Then you would have fully understood (laughs) what I was saying. But anyway, yeah, just a vertical core. That's the goal. Because if you just scoop the top, you're going to have phosphorus numbers that are probably really high uh, and not representative of the root zone. If you dug Mm -hmm. a hole and took stuff out of the bottom, the opposite would be true. Uh, So, yeah. So how do we... Do you... Sorry. So do you understand, like, how do you send it off to the Texas A&M lab? Okay, good. So then you, you want to go online, and the website is an easy one to remember. It's soiltesting.tamu.edu, just like our garden success is garden success at tamu.edu. It's soiltesting.tamu.edu. And when you go on there, there's a, you just read the page, and it'll say somewhere, here's our submission forms. And you click on that, and you want to choose the one that says Urban Soil Sample. 
the urban one means it's it's a yard. It's not a farm. That's what urban mm -hmm. in that context means. I, I wish they wouldn't use the term urban because then people think, well, I don't live in Houston. I live in, in Timbuktu. Why am I using urban? Well, all that means is it's your yard. It's your garden, okay. your lawn, your landscape, so on, fruit trees. And uh, when you use that, it'll allow you to to in the form say, well, this is a soil sample for roses or vegetables or fruit plants or, or whatever. Okay. And then when the results come in, uh, they'll tell you what to do, what you might need to add. And if you have any questions, you can, you know, call the radio show or during the week call us at the extension office or you can, you know, uh, send a copy of your results in so we can actually look at the numbers and, mm -hmm. and uh, then we can advise you also. That sounds great. It's good that you're asking before you plant. Most people <laughs> wait until four years after planting and the plant's not doing good, and then they want to know what to do. So yeah. you're at a stage where you can actually get things right to begin with. So well, I commend we did, you. We did learn the hard way on an apple tree, so <laughs> figured we'd, we'd try and do it right for the peach tree. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, I, I hope you enjoy it. And, and peaches are nice with just one tree. You can have fruit because they don't have to cross-pollinate. And so mm. that's... Uh, just have to now, uh, when you start getting peaches in future years, we just ask that you send 10% of all peaches to, the, oh, to yeah. the radio station, and we'll call it even. Naturally. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Shelby. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu. Edu. And I've had a couple of folks that have emailed about uh, the podcasts or the uh, recorded shows, I should say. Uh, maybe podcasts someday soon, but uh, right now the recorded shows that are there. Uh, and uh, we're in the process of getting those loaded up. So last week's show and this week's show will be up before too long. So I know we had a little bit of a, of a hesitation in the in the process, but things are, are changing computer-wise around the, the university in some areas. And so uh, we're just making the adjustment for that change. So hang on, we'll have those, we'll have those shows up uh, pretty soon. And if you know anybody who is interested in gardening and lives, uh, they don't have to live in this area to benefit, I think, from some of the advice we give, as long as especially they're in the same general uh, cold hardiness zone, uh, then uh, tell them about the, the uh, show. They can listen online live, or they can listen to past shows by going to the KAMU-FM website. Let's go to the phones now and talk to Becky. Hello, Becky. Hi, Skip. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Good. I have a question about my tomato plants. Okay. I have um, Better Boy and Roma tomatoes that I'm growing, and I have noticed on the stem, the stem only, some black spots. It looks as though someone had taken a pepper shaker and shaken it over the, the stems. Is hmm. this something to be concerned about? Well, I can't think of anything that fits that description. Uh, especially, you know, a pepper shaker, I'm thinking the spots are pretty small. And so yeah. um, there are some bacterial diseases that can cause uh, dark, dark spots. Um, but I'd, I'm, I'm going to say no. Uh, watch them closely if they grow in size, start to coalesce or anything like that. 
then definitely another alternative is to take a good close-up picture in sharp focus and email it to me and let me take a look at that. I may suddenly say something very different uh -huh. when I see yeah. uh, what it actually looks like. Uh, or the third thing would be if you had a stem that could be spared, you know, tomatoes produce all the suckers everywhere. There's a leaf, there's a new shoot coming out. And so if you had something that you could cut off the plant that had it and bring it to the extension office for us to look at, that would be the best because then we actually have okay. a live sample. Uh, but right now at this stage, I'm not concerned and I don't know if it was something, anything that you would do to make it all better. So, okay. so oh. I, I think wait and watch is probably your best, your best uh, suggestion. Doing. Normally, with diseases and things, we don't wait. Uh, the earlier you deal with it, the better. But this one is just not sounding like anything. Okay. Thank you for your help. You take care. All right. Thank you for the call, Elizabeth. Or uh, let's see. Oh, excuse me. That was Becky. Now we're going to Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Well, good. I have many Dutch iris blooming in my yard. Okay. Is it worth my while to try to deadhead those spent blooms? Or, I mean, will this encourage more blooms, or is it just a waste of my time and effort? I don't think it'll help uh, to deadhead those. And I am not a Dutch iris expert. I'll just say that up front. Uh, they're not the most common irises that we grow in this area. Uh, but uh, in the times I've been around Dutch iris and watched them grow and things, I don't think that that is going to be a benefit to try to cut them off and, and get additional uh, blooms out of them. Now, if they're if they're ugly and you want to get the spent bloom, pinch those out of there, you can do that. But I don't know that that's going to be something you do to get more blooms out of them. Mm, that's what I was afraid you were going to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, All thank right. you very much. I appreciate the advice. All right, Elizabeth. Thank you for the call. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689 or gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, I had a question that came in, let's see, from uh, Elizabeth. Oh, I believe we I believe we may have answered this one last week, but in case I missed it, I'm going to go ahead and answer it again. Someone else may have this question. Uh, let's see, there was the Elizabeth had a red bud that used to have some blooms on it, and now it's just basically not blooming anymore. And so what is what is wrong? Uh, it just has very, very few uh, blooms. Um, red buds need sunlight. In fact, most plants that bloom need good light to bloom. There are some that can do it in the, sh in the shade to a, d a degree, like an impatience, for example, that bloom in, in pretty shady locations, a little annual flower. But most things, in order to have blooms, you need carbohydrates. In order to have carbohydrates, you need sunlight shining on leaves. And so the I, I would say the first thought is, uh, you know, how how much uh, morning sun you, you indicate morning or excuse me, how much sun you indicate morning sun and shaded by a live oak in the afternoon. Of course, the live oak is going to make it a very shady shade when when that uh, sun goes behind the live oak. Uh, but it may be a matter of enough sun. Uh, as long as the plant looks like it's in decent health, uh, the vigor of it, the overall look of it looks good. Uh, I'm not sure anything else to tell you to do uh, to get it doing doing well enough. Uh, I do know that uh, while a red bud can survive in full sun, it doesn't usually like full sun. The eastern red buds like a little bit of an afternoon shade. 
but at least four hours of sun uh, in order for it to do a good job of blooming. So I hope I hope that works. Um, I you know I I just uh, uh, if if you think it lacks vigor, you might try giving it a little bit of fertilizer, not too much. Uh, look at the trunk size of the tree, and for every inch of trunk diameter, maybe give it a, a cup of fertilizer spread in an area as wide as the branch spread in all directions all around the tree and water it in real well. And that's, I would do that in the next month, within the next month. Uh, and then more important than fertilizing probably is making sure that it gets water, especially during dry spells. When we get into hot summer, whether the demands are high, the roots are pumping water as fast as they can because the leaves are pumping it out. And uh, that is the time when the plant should not lack for water in the soil. And so uh, that doesn't mean daily watering or even three times a week. It means about once a week or two, once every week, maybe in the heat of summer, a good soaking of the whole root zone not just a hose running at the base of the tree, but the, give it a good soaking uh, in the absence of rainfall. So if it's rained a half inch in one week, you shouldn't have to water again for a little while. These plants are made, the trees, they're, they're supposed to take care of themselves. Uh, we shouldn't have to treat a tree like it's a hydrangea plant that we're watering constantly to keep it alive. Uh, a tree is going to have an extensive root system. And uh, so if it hasn't rained in a week or two, in most cases, your trees should be fine. They shouldn't need water. Redbud is a little smaller statured. It's more of a forest, uh, you know, uh, edge of the forest species. It likes to peek out and get a little bit of sunlight uh, and, and do, to do its best. And so maybe we give it a little more TLC than some others. But uh, And it's also the 90 percent of them, maybe more, are the eastern redbud that we see in the trade and see around here. And those are, uh, that well, they're from the eastern U.S. Uh, and so uh, that would be not as drought tolerant as our Texas redbud or our Mexican redbud, which has a, a thicker, uh, more uh, glossy, leathery type of leaf, better able to, to withstand some droughty conditions. Uh, boy, if you can find a Texas redbud, they're not easy to find, but that's a that's a good tough one. I've seen one growing out in the countryside outside Lampasas, Texas, out in the country, going down a country road uh, in the barbed wire fence line, and everything around it was tawny brown in the heat of summer, and it was just as green as it could be. I don't know how that thing was alive, but it was it was surviving out there. Uh, but that's a very different redbud than the eastern redbud that is the vast majority of what you see in garden centers uh, around around the area. All right, well, I hope that helps, uh, Elizabeth. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, uh, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I want to go to another email here. Uh, this one's from Bill, and Bill uh, had a question about a... Um, uh, nutsedge. Uh, basically, you know, what do you recommend? Uh, because nutsedge is something that that is basically a losing battle for a lot of gardeners. And it, it, it depends on where nutsedge is in your yard. Uh, if it's if it's in the lawn area, uh, of course, in St. Augustine, you almost don't see it because St. Augustine's a, a big fat leaf species that weeds don't show up as well in it as they do in a, a nice fine textured zoysia or Bermuda grass, for example. 
Uh, but uh, if it's in a lawn, there are products that are made and have a lawn label. You use them in the lawn that are sedge control products. And sedges are a unique uh, plant in that in most of our weeds are either broadleaf weeds, and that would be things like chickweed, uh, henbit, uh, the, the amaranth or pigweed, those are all broadleaf uh, types of weeds, or grassy weeds, like a crabgrass, for example. And sedges are different than those two, and it takes a different kind of product in almost all cases than you would use on a, a broadleaf or a grassy weed to control a sedge most effectively. <clears throat> there are a number of products out there on the market uh, there's also some that are labeled for use in, in ornamental beds that, that you could use in that situation. A lot of people uh, try to use glyphosate, which is the ingredient in Roundup among other brands. Uh, and the glyphosate will, will burn the nut sedge. It, you think you killed it, and then it'll come back out of the ground again. Now, if every time it came up and had three to five leaves, you sprayed it and killed it, it's using underground reserves push that new growth. And so before the leaves get up and start replenishing the reserves, if you kill it again, you're going to wear it out eventually. Most people aren't able to do that that faithfully and stick with it for the time required to do it. So hand digging in flower beds and gardens is uh, vegetable gardens is number one. That's ever learn what they look like. Learn the nuts, the underground, and the little the little wiry strings that connect one nut to another. Uh, I have some in a bed in my house, and I I just get in there and go through the whole bed with a spade, spading fork, and pull up all I can. And I know I'm not getting it all, but I'm getting a lot of it, the vast majority of it. And when it comes back up, the minute it pops up, it's identified itself, and here we go again. And if you stay with it, you can you can get it that way. So uh, spraying products is one option. Uh, if it's ground that you're not planting anything in, you have more options. But uh, uh, looking for some of these sedge control products, make sure wherever you go they know what they're talking about and they can lead you to something that will control sedges, uh, not just grab a herbicide off the shelf. Uh, and hopefully that'll... That'll be a good a good strategy to to get you off on the right foot. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I've got a couple more emails that I, I want to get to here. I had a question come in from Jake about some little insects on a pecan tree. And I can't quite in the photos, Jake, make out the specific insects close enough to tell what they are. My best guess, and this isn't something that we normally deal with uh, as a major pecan pest, uh, is that it is a bagworm. Those usually we encounter on our junipers and arborvitaes and things uh, because they especially love those. But bagworms will chew on other plants. And it just kind of looks like a very young bagworm that's just starting to form the little protective uh, case of plant debris around it. Uh, I could very well be wrong about that. And so a, a close-up photo would be the next step, or even better yet, bring me a sample at the AgriLife Extension Office. We're out by the, the uh, county tax office on the east side of the bypass. 
and we'll be glad to take a look at it. Put it in a Ziploc bag so it doesn't crawl away. Uh, and uh, make sure your name, phone number, and email are all on it. So in the case of maybe sending you a publication with your email, we can do that. And we'd be happy to take another stab at it. I'd hate to send you off with a pest control recommendation before we figure out exactly what it is that we're after. Well, let's go back to the phones now and talk to Syed. Hello, Syed. Hello, how are you? Kim? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Yep, my question is about uh, rose bushes. Uh, we trimmed those bushes uh, on time, we thought, uh, in October or November, but they have overgrown again, and, uh, and they they don't look very good. Uh, they're, they're, they're overgrown. So is yeah. it still possible to trim them? They're, they're full of you know, buds and things like that. They mm -hmm. hate to cut them, but... But they are too, too big, and we need to trim them. Is so it yes. okay to do this? Yes, it is. Um, can, can you do? You happen to know what kind of roses they are? These are knockout roses. Knockout. Okay. So knockout is a shrub rose, and we would prune it very differently than we would like a hybrid tea if you wanted to make the long cut flowers like you buy in the florist shop. Uh, so yes. knockout is just it can be pruned back like you would any shrub. Um, uh, you can go to great lengths to take out all the dead and twiggy growth and everything and prune it way back. That that would be ideal, but uh, I would I would just cut it back by whatever percentage you need to to get it to the size you want. If you leave knockouts alone, they're going to be six feet or more high and wide, no. and uh, you'll also see them maintained about waist high. But that's through judicious and regular pruning uh, of them back. When you first yeah. cut a bush back a lot, it's going to look pretty um, bad. You know, there'll be a yeah. lot of old limbs just sticking out there with cut off ends. And, uh, yeah. But it will quickly put out new growth and fill back in again. So if you want it to be waist high, I would cut it down to maybe pocket high for now and then be ready to have to prune it again back uh, to waist high later in the season. And then next winter, uh, go back to that heavier pruning on it to get the, the size of the bush down a little bit further. Okay. Good. Another question I have uh, about how uh, often should be water now this setting up my sprinkler system yes to go for one once a week twice a week how what's your suggestion that's it that's a good question uh, i have not watered my lawn once yet now uh, i've got some areas that are a little on the dry side but uh it it's been cool and so the demands are low the water use rate is low in the lawn uh, and we've gotten some rains here and there, so I just haven't had to water at all. So I hate to tell somebody to water once a week at this time of the year. Uh, usually what I would say, and this is generalizing, is that uh, in the summer you would want to water with about an inch a week, and that's in the absence of rainfall. That's assuming that rain is not watering. Uh, and, and then in the spring and fall, you would water with about a half inch in a week. Uh, and But... It all depends on the temperature and, uh, you know, exactly when I say spring, that's several months. So uh, I would say at this time of the year, you know, maybe a half inch a week on a lawn uh, as we go through uh, into May. And then once we get toward the end of May and the beginning of June, we're going to be needing to water a little bit more. Gotcha. Right now we have to just wait and pray for more rain. That's it. Make do it the cheap <laughs> way with with water that's better for the plants anyway. Yeah. 
It sure does. And boy, have we ever had wind. <laughs> it's always pleasant talking to you, Stephen. Have a great day, sir. And you as well, Sayed. Thank you for the call. Yeah, boy, has this ever been a windy uh, spring. I, I know, what do they say, march in like a lion, out like a lamb. Uh, I don't know that we had the out like a lamb. I've, I've seen some April days where um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have a kite attached to me or I may have ended up in the next county over by the time I landed again. It was, it's, uh, it's been awfully windy. So uh, let's see, we had to go back to the emails here and answer a question. Uh, Louis, Louis has a question about uh, fragrant plants. What are some fragrant blooming plants that, that we would recommend? And uh, two of, of Lewis's favorites uh, that he lists and, and asks about uh, are night-blooming jasmine and sweet olive. Sweet olive is an osmanthus uh, plant. And sweet olive has a, a very, in, um, not that noticeable bloom. Um, they, the, um, the blooms are, are inconspicuous and nothing uh, to write home about. Uh, but boy, when that thing releases its fragrance, it is really fragrant. Uh, it's, it's a really nice plant uh, to have in the, in the landscape. And so uh, I, I would uh, consider that to be a good one that you may want to try. Uh, Night-blooming jasmine, uh, you know, it'll, it'll do well also. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, some of these plants that, that do well are, are for a more um, southeastern U.S. Uh, kind of environment. Some of them aren't as cold-hardy uh, as others. And so I, I would I would just kind of be aware of that. And I think Lewis had asked a little bit about that night blooming jasmine. I, I would say with the night blooming, if it's going to get below the mid 20s, I'd get a little bit worried about it. Uh, it's it's more of a zone nine plant and we're in zone eight B here. So if you're willing to cover it, uh, night blooming jasmine, by the way, is Cestrum. And the other one was the Osmanth, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, uh, Osmanthus. Uh, I would not expect night-blooming jasmine to be a good permanent uh, plant without protection during the winter. The sweet olive a little bit, a little bit hardier uh, than the night-blooming jasmine. Not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, some other fragrant plants: uh, Brugmansia, uh, which is also called angel's trumpet. Uh, late in the day, it blooms and has a very nice fragrance. The uh, Texas Mountain Laurel is our spring blooming with the grape Kool-Aid or grape bubblegum smelling blooms that has a very strong fragrance. Some people love it. Some find it gaudy. I didn't know. I don't know if you can call a fragrance gaudy. I know something you look at can be gaudy, but anyway, someone may may want to clarify that for me. But if there's such a thing as a gaudy fragrance, that would be uh, the Texas Mountain Laurel. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to. Oh. Uh, Almond verbena makes a very large shrub, but it has a vanilla scent that is just wonderful. And uh, so it's not, you know, take over an air, I mean, take over a space. It's not invasive. It just makes a big shrub. Uh, but it's a, it's a very nice fragrance uh, that I think you could enjoy. And then there's, there's some, um, uh, let's see, what's the Confederate jasmine has a nice fragrance as well. That's a blooming plant. And let me think about it. Uh, I think we need to go to the phones and take a call, but um, there are some others that we could add to that list. Let's talk now to David. Hello, David. Hello, Skip. How's it going? I'm well. Thanks for waiting. Sure. I've got a couple of things to report and then a couple of questions. Uh, 
I've heard from various sources. I don't remember if this is your belief or not, but that uh, there's no point in trying to uh, carry over like a mandevilla or a uh, bougainvillea over the winter in your garage if there's not any real light in there. And I've got the same bougainvillea and mandevilla that are in pots that for probably eight years. And, uh, yeah, they, they try to grow and they get all stringy, especially the the – mandevilla but but you know when when it comes time and the, the thread of freeze is all gone i can stick it out and cut all that little spindly stuff off and it just grows great so mm-hmm. i would just encourage anybody who who is uh, trying to save those kind of plants over the winter not to be too concerned about the light issue it just uh you know they'll sit there as long as you don't let it completely dry out it, mm-hmm. it's, it's like i said it's been successful for me including including last winter in a in a, a an insulated but unheated garage uh, of course i had a thermometer out and it never really got that cold in my garage but but yeah, i didn't have any problem last winter either so oh, good. that's just one one thing to report okay. uh, and uh also i'm I've reported to you on blackberries before. Once again, my Ross Burrows are going like gangbusters, and my Primark and my Natchez Thornless are puny looking. Oh my! <laughs> so okay. I'm just uh, I'm I, I don't mean to be anti-Thornless because that, that'd be lovely. I'd love to have a lot mm-hmm. of Thornless blackberries, but I continue to have that. And so you were talking about carefree plants. I, I would say that the blackberries are even more carefree than the figs. I have both and. The figs, unfortunately, can get attacked by birds. They they tend not to bother my blackberries a whole lot. Yeah, but, bl- uh, that's right. Blackberries are another good one if you want to grow without having to spray. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's great. I very rarely. I mean, sometimes you get a little uh, uh, spider mites on the leaves and stuff, but it's usually fairly minor. Uh-huh. Uh Now it is a, a mess to clean it up after they're through uh, for these because all those, as you know, all the the canes that produce are all never going to produce again. So mm-hmm. it is not fun. You better get you some long, thick gloves to do that. <laughs> so yeah, okay. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So okay. Yeah. Uh, now the questions are. Uh, sugar snap peas. I always try to grow some. Got a late start for various reasons. Uh, these are Cascadia, which I think you recommended way back, and I've had pretty good success. But already I've had to pull up some that hadn't even produced yet that have gotten pretty obviously root rot. And uh, other than just trying to plant them somewhere else, which is not real practical for me, I was wondering if you had know of anything that would reduce the problem of root rot because it is uh, a chronic problem for the peas and also... Uh, I've had some other plants. Uh, it was a, uh, what was it? Um, uh, one of the big mallows or whatever. It was mm-hmm. uh, one of them that, that gets out of a real dish size bloom. Okay. It lasted only a short time and then, then the root was rot, you know, rotted. So any, any suggestions on that? And then I have one other question. Okay, David, are you, what kind of soil do you have? Is it a clay? I'm sorry, what's that? Is your soil a heavy clay? Oh, uh, well, where the peas are, no, it's, it's, uh, it's my, my, uh, garden. It's, uh, my vegetable garden. It's got a lot of, uh, uh organic matter worked into it. It's, hmm. uh, started out with mostly clay, but, but it, it certainly wouldn't, I mean, it's pretty friable. It's okay. in good shape. So that's, that's not an issue. That's unusual. I, what, when you say it, it's root rot, 
I, I don't know how to ask this where it doesn't sound like a stupid question. Uh, what makes you say that? I mean, are, are you seeing a plant that looks uh, okay but starting to decline on top, and then when you pull it up, the roots are way gone? Or that, that pretty much is the deal. That's they're black, and when you pull it up, uh, obviously some may just break off anyway normally, but there's practically nothing okay. left of the root. It's just a black stub and mm-hmm. clearly looks pathetic. Okay, and and it. Uh, and again, the, 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 what what of course brings it to your attention is is yes, the leaves the leaves are fading. They they look they look like it may be still alive. And then you pull it up and you wonder how in the world it was even not completely dead yet okay. because it, the roots look so terrible. And you probably have not seen anything like wireworms or anything that would be chewing roots underground. Uh, I'm not sure what a wireworm looks like, but I have seen some things that look sort of weird that have a uh, like a segmented uh, okay. uh, body, and they're I guess not real small, but I don't know. Is that what you're talking about? Kind yes. of kind of orange looking. Yeah, you probably have to you know maybe you know go online, Google it, or have whatever yeah. search engine and see. But they're a they they're usually kind of a tannish, yellowish, reddish colored uh, creature. Mm-hmm. That's longer. Um, I, I'm not going to try to describe it on the air, but uh, anyway. Yeah, about how about how long? Maybe. Maybe. Well, they could probably get up to an inch long, but they could okay. also be smaller uh, in the ground. They do feed underground. I'm just trying to think of what other complicating things, because I'm not aware of a particular root rot problem on peas. I've not had that problem before. Now I'm sure there are root rots that will attack them, but if it's not a a drainage related root rot problem then I'm a little bit stumped and I think maybe the thing to do uh, would be just to have the the disease clinic the state plant clinic take one in that stage that you described and 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 look at it and see what what is killing this specifically and then it'd be a little easier to know what to do about it Uh, I don't know if it's worth doing that for a vegetable you know or not I mean if it was a valuable shrub uh, that, but right. just a little something you can replant with seeds may not be worth the cost of, of that analysis. But anyway, uh, I good drainage, I'd recommend. Make sure it's not an insect related to it. Uh, put in some more compost, loosen things up a little bit. And, I, boy, I don't know what else to tell you on those peas. I guess not, not over water, I guess. I mean, obviously, we haven't had much rain, so I've been trying to keep it well watered. But. Yeah. Yeah, some of our, you know, Rhizoctonia and Botrytis, well, not Botrytis, uh, What's the other one? I can't think of it right now. Uh, but that we have several soil root rot organisms that are directly connected to overwatering or, or sog- mm-hmm. I should say, poor drainage of the soil. Yeah. Uh, not every root rot is. Cotton root rot's not related to that. That would be yeah. a different one. But um, you might, yeah, you, you just might check that. I believe you got me stumped. What was that last question you had? Well, the last question, and, and one more comment on that on my peas is that it's raised, it's the the area is really raised up pretty okay. high, so it really doesn't. It's certainly not sitting in any kind of saturated soil. It drains quickly, so oh, okay. that's really not it. But yeah. The the other question is just uh, I used to have pretty good luck with my uh, Melinda Dream rose, and and it was you know, blooming like beautiful pink blooms. I'm sure you're very familiar with it, and. Yeah. Uh, and so, but I started getting the thrips, and then so I started okay before the, yeah, well before the, the buds even really start forming. Like not too long ago, I, I did this uh, metacloprid in the, you know, around the base so that it would 
go into the tree and do some hopefully systemic uh, resistance to the thrips. And, and, and I've got some blooms that some of them look okay, but some of them are, you know, I have thrips in them. And so my question is, I'm also familiar with spinosad, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And so I had some of that, and my understanding is that if I'm going to try to still defeat the thrips, that I should maybe, I, I might have some luck with spraying the buds with spinosad. Uh, and so I did yesterday, but I don't know if that's, I'm talking about even the ones that aren't opening yet and, and hope for the best. Uh, I don't know if I should spray the whole plant or just buds or what or whether that's even just a wasted effort so i guess that's the main question yeah well imidacloprid is not something that should be a great thrip control product uh mm. thrips control product mm. uh so i i would not expect good results from that uh, there is a, actually an organic uh product called oh gosh <laughs> It, my mind went blank. It'll occur to me somewhere in this sentence. Uh, but an organic product that you can use that's pretty good on thrips, and it works. Uh, spinosad is the one. Uh, it works pretty good, but you don't want to overuse it. If you use it several times a year, year after year, you're going to have uh, spinosad resistance develop in, in those those insects, and so you'd like to avoid that. Uh, well, that is that is what I sprayed it with uh, oh, yesterday. Okay. But, but I, my my concern was there and, and you mentioned the overuse but do you just spray the buds you spray the whole plant but uh, is it supposed to be systemic or or just contact or, or what no just spray the buds it it's it's not systemic in the sense that you spray the left side of the plant and it moves to the right side of the plant it's systemic in that it soaks into the tissues where you spray it and so okay. it, it moves you know, we the fancy word is translaminar across the leaf. You spray one side of the leaf, and it moves across the other side. Uh, okay. But um, it it uh, it's pretty effective. It just it's easy to for it to no longer be effective. And so okay. uh, you know, if your neighbor overused it, and now you used it for the first time and didn't have good results, it could be because mm -hmm. you have resistant thrips that have come over. And yeah, so. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of frustrating. But I guess it, unless you got any other ideas on thrips, and I'll just keep trying that. There are there are other sprays out there that you can use. Um, I'd have to go look and see what is the current best that's over the counter uh, for thrips. And uh, I most people just don't want to have to get out and spray their their plants that uh, much. Well, and and my my wife has a has a beehive, and I I don't want them. Yes. Danger the bees either. Well, there you go. And and Belinda's dream is not a bee magnet uh, because of the form of the flower, and for one right. thing. Uh, but anytime you're using a metacloprid, uh, if that flower plant has bee flowers, you you definitely don't want to do that. Right. Right. Well. Okay. Well. Um, I'm a little frustrated because I had beautiful blooms for years, and then the thrips found me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a great uh, rose. It's, in fact, yeah. that's one of my favorite roses. Um, well, I, but, and, and one last comment: I have, I have, I have four peach trees, and I'll happily give you one tenth of my crop, which will be probably about half a peach. Because that's <laughs> been, you, you need to, you need to warn those poor people growing peaches that unless they're just real lucky, then uh, they may have a problem <laughs> getting a good crop. Well, but, there uh, there are <laughs> some steps. Uh, peaches aren't the easiest thing to grow. No, but there no. are some steps, but you you know. You sound like Thomas Jefferson. He said that a, an acre of peaches would keep you in firewood all winter. So, 
That's that's the kind of peach grower he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can relate. <laughs> All right. I can relate. All, All right. right. Well, thanks very much. Enjoy right. the show. Thank you, David. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. And let's see, I want to go back here. thought I had, oh, we're talking about fragrant plants. I tell you what, before we do that, let me talk about some activities going on. I don't want to run out of time today before I tell you about stuff. That's going on in the area. Uh, the Brazos County Master Gardeners next Tuesday, April 26th, are going to have a program that is now available to the public. You know, for a long time, um, I, um, I we were not inviting people in. Uh, there was their their meetings were internal only, and it was a COVID-related thing. But now they've opened back up again. So their monthly educational programs will be available to the public, and that is at no charge. And you're not going to talk them down on that price, right? No charge. So on April 26th, Tuesday at 7 p.m. at the Extension Office, which is next to the County Tax Office on County Park Court, uh, the uh, program will be the Gardens Executive Director down at John Ferry Garden, formerly uh, it was called Peckerwood Garden, in Hempstead, and uh, the the executive director, Randy Twaddle, will uh, give a presentation that uh, basically is a guiding through the unique expression of one of Texans, uh, pa of one Texan's passion for exotic and rare plants in Mexico, North America, and Asia. And a, a lot of the plants down at the John Ferry Garden were collected on trips to places uh, around Mexico, North America, and Asia, and have come back. And if you just are tired of the same old, same old when it comes to plants, this will be a fascinating look uh, at some of the things in the parts of the world, and the plants from those parts of the world uh, that might be of interest. Next Tuesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. So uh, let's see what else is going on. Of course, we always have our farmers markets around town. We like to encourage you to support those uh, on uh, on Friday. That'd be tomorrow. There's Farm Friday out on Tabor Road, uh, 2861 FM 974. That's a new farmers market. There's uh, locally grown produce, plants, eggs, dog treats, all kinds of other things available. Uh, and uh, that's from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. tomorrow. Those, uh, that, it is on Fridays in general, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Then on, on Friday also, the South Brazos County Farmer's Market is from noon to 5, and that's at the corner of University and Glen Haven, which basically you're heading out east on University right before you get to the bypass. You turn right down Glen Haven, and it'll be right in there on the right. Uh, in, in, an, in a vacant uh, lot area there. And they have all kinds of things, including produce, eggs, jams, jellies, herbs, Texas olive oil, honey, and other things like that. And then on Saturday uh, is the uh, Farmer's Market downtown in Bryan. That's from 8 a.m. to noon. It's at Main and 21st Street. And again, a wide variety of many different things. There's usually a food truck on site there and even some live music. In fact, I've enjoyed the music as much as anything, uh, sometimes going down uh, to check out that market. So lots of opportunities to support local producers and to get uh, a really nice uh, array of local things that you can grow or that you can eat uh, that are grown uh, right around uh, this area. 
Uh, let's see, what other things? I think that pretty well takes us through most of April. Uh, although, let's see, down at the, the John Ferry Garden on Saturday, uh, the 23rd, that's the day after tomorrow, and on the 30th, they're going to have their guided tours, and they, they leave it on the hour at 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. You want to get early, so you, they're early, so you can sign in. Uh, members of the garden are free, $10 for non-members, to John Ferry Garden down in Hempstead. And you can go to jfgarden.org for more information on that if you're curious about that uh, particular thing. Let's see, get back here and get the... Okay, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Or if you want to email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And uh, you had a question, and I may have covered this one also last week. It, it's familiar. Sometimes I, I see the question, and I don't get to answer it before the end of the day, and so I think I've, I've answered it, but I haven't. Uh, but uh, Sherry had a question about a burr clover. Uh, it's, it's throughout the yard, and it's down a long driveway. And they also have a pond, so they want to know what can we use to reduce or eliminate uh, the burr clover. Uh, without, I'm assuming what they're meaning there is not damage the pond. Uh, and when it comes to any kind of waterway and pesticides, you it, it is just very important to read the label. Some labels will say don't spray where it's going to run off into something. Or they will tell you how to spray. And where we most get our problems with pesticides and water is when we over-apply a product or when we apply it right before a rain. Sometimes people will have a weed and feed product, which I don't, don't recommend that, that you combine those two. But uh, it's going to rain, so they go, hey, if I run out and fertilize, it'll water it into my yard. But you can't control how much it rains. And so we end up with runoff with nitrogen, phosphorus, or other nutrients. We end up with the product for weed control, maybe, also being washed off into streams. And uh, the thing we like to say, uh, just to kind of make a point, is all land drains to some body of water. No matter where you are in the world, drains to some body of water. And uh, the, the, uh, uh, the slogan that is used by one of our cities in Texas for their water quality program, it says, if you dump it, you drink it. And so whether it's your oil, uh, when you're changing the oil in your car, whether it's a pesticide you put out, it's going to end up in water that somebody <clears throat> is is likely to either be swimming or drinking or something like that in. So we want to be careful with those types of things. But back to the back to the question, uh, the the clovers and the medics, which look a lot like clover, those weeds are typically sprouting in the fall, late September, early October. They're sitting there through the winter, and then they're taking off and really growing and showing up now. They usually come out of a single point and then spread in all directions, like a little wildfire burning out in all directions. And so they're not that difficult to pull up uh, unless you just have a bazillion of them. And uh, you can reach down and get that taproot. If the soil is moist, it comes right up. I would recommend hand-pulling as much as possible now of any of our cool-season weeds because all those seeds... Uh, the plants are blooming, setting seeds, probably even dropping seeds. But as carefully as you can get those out of there, you are saving yourself uh, 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of seeds that'll be weeds to pull up on another year. So go ahead and get them out now. It's too late to spray. Once those plants become reproductive, once they've gone through the winter and now they're blooming and actually setting seed, the products aren't as effective and it's probably too late to control and kill those, those or prevent those seeds from being viable. So at that point, we're back to hand, hand harvesting the weeds and getting them out of there. Or maybe if it's a weed that puts its seed up a little higher, you can use a lawnmower with a bagging attachment and then dump that bagging attachment and put that stuff in the trash. Don't put it in your compost. You're just adding weeds to the compost there. Uh, so that would be my recommendation, I think, on those. If you want to avoid it next year, number one, mow, water, fertilize, grow the densest lawn you can, and avoid the vast majority of weeds that you will have. There are weeds that can live in a thick, dense St. Augustine lawn or Bermuda lawn or Zoysia lawn, but those are the exceptions. Most things are not going to survive well when the lawn is dense. And so mow, water, and fertilize. You've got a whole summer to get ahead of next fall when the medic and the clover and the chickweed and the annual bluegrass and the uh, carpet weed or, or uh, uh, cleavers and just all henbit, all those others, they're going to be coming up this fall. So will they be coming up in a lawn with bare spots? Because wherever sunlight hits the soil, nature plants a weed. And so that's number one. Number two would be in about the third week of September, put a preventative product down and follow the label. Almost all of them are going to require you to water them in after you apply them at the correct rate. If a teaspoon's good, a tablespoon's not better. Uh, follow the label and apply it right, get it watered in, and prevent them from sprouting. But our number one goal is build a lawn they can't get in, they can't establish in. And if if you haven't been able to do that, then the, the, the herbicide, pre-emergent, preventative herbicide would be your next bet, and that's going to be a mid-September thing. So I hope that hope that kind of clarifies that. Well, I was going to go into a couple of other things today, but I'm looking at the clock and watching it tick away uh, our time. Uh, we really enjoy the chance to visit with you. I hope you enjoy the show. I would, I would uh, ask that you tell people about the show that might be interested uh, in listening. I know we have a lot of gardeners around here uh, that uh, are... Uh, not even aware of the fact that there's a gardening show they can listen to. Well, we are done for today, but I look forward to talking to you again next Thursday from 12 to 1. We'll be back here for Garden Success on KAMU-FM. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan. 
979-822-7209.